Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati, your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. William Knight. Hello, this is Bill Knight coming to you from the University of Cincinnati on behalf of the National Stroke Education Center. Today, I'm privileged to be joined by one of my friends and partners, Dr. Matt Smith. Matt is a neurologist and also a neurointensivist pursuing additional training in neurointervention. And today, Matt's going to join me to, to talk about some of the tips and tricks for identifying posterior circulation stroke. And I can say being an, an emergency physician myself who, who does stroke management, uh, this is still one of those conditions that when my brethren and sister in emergency medicine approached me about how do we detect the difference of posterior stroke versus peripheral causes is still one of the, the holy grails, I think, of emergency neurology that presents to the ED. And since a posterior circulation stroke can be one of the, the scariest conditions that we deal with, it's rare, it's hard to diagnose, and it has devastating, unacceptable outcomes. Matt, do you have any tips and tricks that you have from, from your bag in terms of helping us pick up some of those more subtle conditions or subtle signs that, that can help us pick these up before it's too late? Thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, I agree this is a very difficult condition. I still have PTSD from residency on getting calls to go see the dizzy patient in the emergency room. I believe the first way that I try and tune into these patients is to separate out dizzy and syncope from vertigo. So an acutely vertiginous patient will have a sensation of movement with nausea, vomiting, and then almost always a focal neurologic deficit It is if it is a true posterior circulation stroke. I think that's important. I think that, like you said, even in the weak and dizzy, the cerebellar strokes and the posterior circulation events can still hide, but, but some can be easier to, to tease out. Are there any can't miss symptoms of a cerebellar stroke of, of a way that can be turned in from a symptom into a physical exam sign, kind of separating out the two different areas of posterior circulation, the cerebellum itself, which is the ataxia and the vertigo, and then also the brainstem, which can have some of those non-pattern recognition motor deficits. Absolutely. So for cerebellar to, to get ataxia, it's important to stand the patient. You really can't do a good posterior circulation exam without standing the patient. And if they can't stand, if they're so vertiginous that they have truncal ataxia and are going to one side or the other, that's someone who needs worked up for a stroke. If they have appendicular ataxia, which is found with a finger nose, finger nose, or a heel to shin maneuver, that's a patient that needs worked up for a posterior circulation stroke. The brainstem is a little bit more difficult, and something that I'll talk about in some of these videos is using the test of skew. And this is misalignment of the eyes in primary gaze when you cover one eye and then uncover it. And it is our most sensitive sign of a posterior stroke. That's awesome. I, I find that this is one of the more challenging conditions that we have, and there is at times some eye rolling on our behalf about getting that patient up and walking them, but I, I completely agree that the labyrinthitis or the, the benign positional vertigo has a very different approach to ambulation and then that, that testing of ataxia and, and, and these people all need to be gotten up and, and walked, which at times is challenging given the, the severity of their symptoms, whether it's peripheral or central. Moving a little bit more in the, in the couple of minutes we have left to the, the more severe. So the person that's 
acutely vertiginous or nauseous and sitting in a, in a hospital stretcher is a little bit different than the people that come in with sudden onset of unresponsiveness. And often with acute unresponsiveness, stroke is not at the top of the differential. There's many other things that can cause that. And so what one or two tips do you have or suggestions for detecting those rare locked-in or basilar artery occlusions in the ED? Yeah, the locked-in syndrome is particularly devastating. In my neurointerventional training, those are the cases that really stick with you. People who have been somewhere else or misdiagnosed as encephalopathy or having seizures when in fact they're having a basilar artery occlusion. I am always suspicious of the patient who quote unquote keeps seizing after they're given Ativan, after they're intubated. And on a number of occasions, what this has ended up being is extensor posturing. And so the patient is intubated, sedated, and keeps extensor posturing, keeps coughing, keeps bucking their whole body. And this can happen with a basilar artery occlusion. So in the patient who is unresponsive, if there is posturing of the arm and legs, if they appear to keep seizing no matter how much sedation you give them, or if they have focal neurologic deficits with gaze deviation, pupil abnormality, or deviated eyes and a deviated gaze, that person needs a CT angiogram to make sure they're not having a basilar artery occlusion. I think that's the critical take-home point here is what to do about it. And I think that, you know, it's hard to get EEG evaluation in the ED, and that can often lead to that delay in diagnosis of some of these vascular occlusions that with a clinical suspicion to move directly to the immediate available test of the ED, which would be a CT angiogram. And I, and I agree, the ones that stand out in my career have been the stimulus-induced extensor posturing, the persistent extensor posturing that's viewed as clonic movements or, or seizure-type moves. Matt, this has been great. These are all great tips I think we can all take to improve our practice. That is all the time that we have. Uh, I'd like you to thank you for joining us and, and appreciate everybody for tuning in today. Uh, this is Bill Knight and Matt Smith with the National Stroke Education Center and University of Cincinnati. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, M. Craig International, and MedEd On The Go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.